Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are National Autobahn Society, Pearl S. Buck International, Primate Rescue Center. You can find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders at give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. This is the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I am Art Taylor. Could you imagine that your job is to do nothing but focus on what may happen five to 10 years from now? It's all you had to do. You don't have to think about the present. You don't have to think a whole lot about the past. You just get to spend all your time at work envisioning what may come in five to 10 years from now. Now, for some people, you know, it's, it's not really a rescue because if you're generally pessimistic, the future can be a dauntingly scary place. But if you're optimistic and hopeful, the future can be exciting, bright, brilliant, wonderful place to hopefully get to someday. Well, we have an individual with us today who gets to do that. He gets to spend his time helping us think about what may come next, what may be coming down a road in five to 10 years. And he does it with an organization that has literally changed my life. It is the Institute for the Future. And I may have told the story about the Institute and my relationship with it many times because I've had others on the show from the Institute, especially Bob Johansson, a few times. But the Institute changed my life because it gave me an approach to understanding what may happen next through the tools and insights that the processes which the Institute uses to develop forecasts for the future. They offer insights and ways to even begin acting as a result of what you've learned about possible futures. So today, you know, I'm always excited when I get to talk to someone from the Institute because of how it changed my life. And today I get to talk to Toshi Anders Hu, who is the director of the Emerging Media Lab at the Institute for the Future. And today we're going to talk about probably one of the hottest topics in the world right now, really, generative AI and AI in general. And Toshi spent a lot of time thinking about this 
and he's going to give us some of his insights and some things for us to think about as we begin to grapple with this amazing technology. Toshi, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thanks, Art. Really uh, happy to be here. So, Toshi, the first thing I wanted to just say is that I get to see you in person tomorrow as we are heading to the Microsoft Global Philanthropy Leaders Summit. I think it's what it's called. Yeah, I think that's right. When we come back from that, we may know a little bit more than we did when we left because there's going to be a big emphasis, obviously, on AI and the nonprofit sector. But we'll deal with that maybe at another time. But today, I think it'd be great to have a conversation in general about the power of AI, some of the things that we should be concerned about, some of the things that we should look forward to getting enhanced as a result of this technology, and any other things really that are on your mind. So let me first just let me ask you about the Emerging Media Lab and your work there. What is all that about? <laughs> well, it's my life's work currently. If you're familiar with IFTF, Institute for the Future, as I know you are, Art, but maybe your listeners aren't, you might know that we're looking into a wide range of different types of futures. And we have labs that are looking at various different types of futures. Uh, everything from the future of governance, the future of work, the future of learning, the future of food, future of health. Our director runs the Equitable Futures Lab. And the Emerging Media Lab is one of these labs. And what we like to say is that our focus is around looking at the future of human communication, collaboration, and connection, all those things we use media for, through the lens of emerging media technologies, as well as emerging media mythologies meaning not just the technologies and tools, but what are the new stories that are happening and able to be told that couldn't be told before? What are the new conversations that are going to be had? Who's going to be part of those conversations? And how is that going to affect how we do our sense-making in the world? Because I believe that storytelling itself is one of the earliest human technologies and one of the technologies that makes us unique. So while I look in my day-to-day work a lot at the emerging specific technologies like artificial intelligence or virtual reality. Really what I'm interested in is how, what does this mean for humans as we try to make sense of our world, both individually as well as collectively? Well, I can say this, it's, it probably would be better to try to make sense of the future world than this present world. <laughs> Cause I can't make any sense of the present world. And I hear some futurists actually say that it's a messy time. It's it's hard to focus on the present and really make sense of it. But when you think out five to 10 years, you can see things a bit more clearly. Uh, what's your thoughts about that? I think that is very true. It, it's almost like, you know, you often hear people say like, it's easier to give advice to other people than to give that advice to yourself. You know, our relationship with ourself is very special as well as our own time and our own perspective in it. That's a story I would say we're attached to that story. And that story often just makes it hard to kind of see other stories so we can get wrapped up in what we think is going to ha- be happening or who we think we are. And, you know, one of the best examples of kind of futures work, I think, that we see in our lives in pop culture is science fiction, right? Something like Star Trek, where we're seeing vision of the future. But as many people would point out, very often those the science fiction is really just a a way for us to look into ourselves in the present and have that kind of 
distance from it that allows us to see more clearly without maybe some of the distractions that we have around our current storytelling about who we are, what's happening in the world in the present. So I think that's really important. And honestly, I I actually think that the purpose of strategic foresight and and one of the things I share and when we when we teach strategic foresight at IFTF is first first thing to note is no one can predict the future. (laughs) And don't believe that anybody that tells you that they can't predict the future. Yeah. But the other thing to note is that, you know, our whole process, our whole uh, set of methodologies, our whole existence as an organization and and our mission is to not just help people anticipate a range of possible futures, but really I see that the goal is is to better understand ourselves in the present. And uh, I think that that, le- that future's lens is really a really powerful mirror as we look into that future and kind of look back at ourselves through that mirror in understanding who we are, what our capabilities are f- from a new perspective. And I think really the goal of futures work isn't necessarily just to be thinking about the future, is actually to be able to be- make better decisions today and see things more clearly today. Toshi. So what is AI? What are we talking about when we say AI? <laughs> I used to think it was, we should call AI Alan Iverson, who was a great basketball player. <laughs> <Yeah>. AI. <laughs> what is AI? What are we talking about? Yeah, What's well, AI? I think it, first of all, it depends on who you're talking to, if they're a big bas- basketball fan or if they're more into, you know, computer science or science fiction. But I'm only kind of joking there. The first thing I like to say when I help you know, curate and, and facilitate conversations around AI is that AI is very large and complicated phenomena. It's emergent generative AI, which is the recent expression of, you know, an architecture and kind of flavor of artificial intelligence. Generative AI is actually shape-shifting. It behaves differently in every interaction for every, in every setting. Um, It's designed to do that. That's why it's generative. So it's really hard to kind of have a conversation about it because people have very, very, very different ideas of what AI is today and what it means for tomorrow. And I think that that actually is an accurate reflection of how kind of multifaceted and enormous this kind of phenomena is. Like if you were to say like, what is the internet? Like we could talk about technically the kind of enabling technologies are, but in terms of impact and as a phenomenon in our lives, it's multifaceted. But that all said, let's say, let's, let's talk about what we can say about what our, what AI is. When people say artificial intelligence, generally they're referring to like the idea of creating computer technologies that allow us to make decisions. <laughs> and uh, this, uh, there's lots of different ways to build artificial intelligence. And humans have been working on this for over 60 or 70 years, really since the beginning of when they started making computers at all. And our approaches have been varied over time. The recent approach that we're taking is this new form of generative AI. Uh, It's a little different than the last kind of big a trend in AI, which which I would call classification AI. And the difference, you know, can kind of be broken out in a more simple way. Like classification AI is essentially like identifying patterns, right? It's trying to do pattern recognition. So like a lot of the classification AI systems would like take a whole folder of photos of cats and dogs and say, okay, this one's cats, this one's dogs, like that kind of sorting. And that kind of AI that we're, many of us are, I mean, already are integrated into our everyday lives. It's what, you know, is helping to curate our social media feeds. It's what's, you know, giving you a recommendation on Netflix. It's even kind of what's happening behind the scenes with, with something like a search engine like Google. 
generative AI is not pattern recognition necessarily. It's more, something more. It's it's basically generating new patterns. So they both look at a lot of training data, but the goal of generative AI is to kind of predict what would be the next word in a sentence or the next pixel in a photo or the next frame in a video. And that's important to understand for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's why we are able to do things like generate very human-like sounding text. That's what these kind of chatbots do, like ChatGPT and, and, and others. And it's also why if you, you know, if you ask ChatGPT something or, you know, one day or with a slightly different wording and another day you ha- ask it something else, it might, or, or the same thing, but it's slightly different wording, it might give you a very different answer. And in fact, somebody else might get a very different answer. So that's unlike a lot of technology that we've had before. Like we kind of anticipate that we, we expect, you know, technology and computers to kind of do the same thing each time if we put in the same commands or input. Generative AI is very different than most, not only AI, but most technology that we've interacted with before. So it's something that people call non-deterministic, meaning it's kind of unpredictable. And that's really great when you're trying to be creative and using it to kind of explore new possibilities. But it can be maybe not so useful when you're trying to get answers to questions. And one of the things you may have heard about with generative AI today is that people say sometimes it hallucinates, which means it's making up an answer that sounds like an answer, but isn't a correct answer, isn't factually correct. And it's important to understand that that is part of the design of this technology. It's underneath the hood. It's not designed to create an answer. It's designed to predict the next word in a sentence that sounds like a correct answer. And very often that is a correct answer. And actually that's why we've been able to like use it to answer a lot of questions and do very powerful things like translation or summarization with text and things like this. But it's really just important to understand that it's the answers it's giving us are answers that sound like or look like answers. And that's right now the best it can do. And that introduces some interesting creative opportunities, but also introduces some challenges for folks that are trying to implement this in organizations today. Yeah, that's a true thing. So challenge for institutions that are trying to use this today, because we generally like predictability, right? We want to know when we ask a question, it's going to be the same answer every time, if it's the correct answer, even if it's the wrong answer, give me the same wrong answer every time. So at least I know I got to fix it. Yes, exactly. But when you tell me that there's going to be a different answer every time, it gets a little concerning. So that is limiting in terms of what we can do with it, right? So what are some of the more helpful applications of a technology that gives you a different answer every time? So if I'm a person sitting at my desk doing my job as a, let's say, researcher, let's say I'm researching information to produce articles for the company I work for. How would I use this technology? Yeah. Well, one of the rules of thumb that we like to to share with folks is that you're more likely to be successful in using generative AI if you view it not as a, a reliable answer finder, but as an unprecedented possibility explorer. And as really an augmentation, you know, that's another thing, a way to think about AI. Like uh, there was even arguments when AI, the term was coined back in the the 1950s, like, should this be artificial intelligence or should this stand for augmented intelligence? Many people, myself included, believe that the more useful way to think about it is to think about this as 
augmentation for humans. So have it be a partner. Don't look to it to be an oracle. Look to it to be a muse. So that means that the way you use it shouldn't be like to go to it and ask it questions and believe everything it says and and follow that. It should be a partner in exploring ideas and possibilities. And that doesn't mean you can't ask it questions that, you know, like, for example, like we, we even use it sometimes not just for generating interesting forecasts, but like saying like, what would be an action plan that we could follow to, to, to pursue this forecast? What you want to make sure you do, and what we believe it's really going to be important for organizations is that there needs to be not just a human in a loop, but someone who's paying attention enough when that's interacting with AI to really pull out, okay, is this accurate? Is this factually accurate? Is this ethically correct? So it really needs to be a partnership between humans and AI. And we need to really think about AI not so much replacing humans, but as an augmentation and something that's going to be within our human systems that already is checking for things like validity and, and you know ethical values and things like that. So nonprofits are looking to do a number of things, but let's start with strategic planning. One of the things we like to do is think about how we can do our programs better next time around or be more effective in delivering them, let's say. Even if it's a good program, we got to make sure we deliver it. Would it be a fair use of an AI to, for instance, say, can you give me some ideas for how we can make this particular program better based on this set of information that we might give it? Absolutely. I think that's a really valid conversation to have with an AI like a chatbot and things like that. And you want to treat it kind of like, I I often treat it like an expert interview that we do. We do a lot of expert interviews in our research, which, you know, you want to ask questions just kind of like you're asking of me today in this interview, but you also want to kind of probe more deeply and say like, did you mean this? Or did you mean that? Or are you sure about this? Are you sure about that? Or here's some, you know, maybe here's a counter point of view that you might be, you might want to consider. That's the same kind of relationship that you want to have with artificial intelligence. You you want to be in conversation. You want to be poking and prodding it. You want to be asking its questions or like, how did you come to that answer? Why did you come to that answer? You can even ask AI to say like, okay, how about like, you know, let's, Let's uh, let's have a conversation about uh, you know a program that we're looking to to think through how you might launch it, and then ask it say well what are some things that might come up that I might not be expecting? Great, yeah. Or throw it a curveball, say like tell me what we might need to consider if launching this program for folks who are uh, disabled or in the global south. And that's what I mean by expanding possibilities. You don't necessarily say want to say like okay just tell me everything I need to do. It's more, how do I have a conversation with this language model that I started the conversation kind of cautionary around like yeah. trusting and reliability. But I should also say, I mean, this is an incredible technology that's able to take literally a trillion words, like all this knowledge of human language. And it's not only able to have the neat parlor trick of, of being able to have a co- coherent conversation and have a response and listen to kind of things that the user is saying and, and have a back and forth that feels very human-like. But one of the things that researchers have found is that in order to basically predict the next word, many researchers believe that the AI inside of its large neural network has created kind of a model 
of how the world works. Hmm. And that's why it's exhibiting the ability to, to do some reasoning and planning, like in the example that we were just discussing, like how could it even understand the world enough to like offer a strategic plan for a nonprofit organization in a specific sector? So that's important to know is that it does contain some a model of the world. What your job is, and our job as humans already when we're interacting with other non-AI organizations or just human beings is to like feel out what is their model of the world and how do we kind of grow that model and make it fit better what we know in the context of what we're doing. So in the examples you gave, like, you know, the AI often gives a fairly generic response, but you as a user can go back and say, well, I work at this organization. Here's the five things that we've learned that you may not know. And it will integrate that into its response. So it's really a back and forth. And that's what we really recommend in terms of like getting the best value. You know, there's always the concerns, right? So we have to spend some time just talking about some of the things people should be cautious about when using this. What will be your top two or three cautions as we embark upon this? Are you talking about at the individual level or just more of the societal level? No. I think let's let's focus on the business level right now. Well, first thing to note, and uh, and this is uh, almost a direct quote from one of the lead team members at OpenAI in an interview I saw recently with him is, do not use generative AI for high stakes situations. <laughs> it is still experimental. We are at the very early days of trying to understand this. Now, that's not to say like, don't use it at all. I think it's really important that organizations begin to build literacy around it and run small experiments in sandbox environments because this is going to be a factor in our lives. So, But that's my recommendation, number one. Don't go all in. Don't rush in because you have a sense of FOMO. Like this is, we're learning about this every day. And so it's important to kind of take it slow and learn as the industry matures and all of humanity understands more about this technology. So that's recommendation number one is don't use it for high stakes situations. Number two, I'll just reiterate what I said, like don't take anything it says to be necessarily factually or ethically correct. You need to put in place a set of protocols and a kind of general culture and literacy of understanding of like how to be skeptical and how to press it for its answers. Uh, and also to just to understand, I guess, number three would be understand that basically, you know, machine learning systems like generative AI, these chatbots, they're all built off of training data. And that is going to bias what these models think. We have already seen that with the previous kind of crops of uh, classification AI that were used to try to like determine sentencing <laughs> in courts of law or determine, determine who should get a, a loan. Often what we found is that those pattern recognition systems took the patterns of bias and oppression and marginalization often and just recreated them because they said, well, that's the patterns you showed me. So I'm going to keep doing that. So we need to also be aware and be cautious of the bias that the models have. And that's both as a user that we need to understand as we're doing this as an organization and then at society level. And I'll throw in one more thing that I think organizations just need to be aware of is if you're just going into some of these chatbots and having a conversation, just note, it's not always clear if they're taking that data from that conversation and using that in their training. And that may not be, you do not want to be putting 
private data in there or proprietary data or health data in there because you don't necessarily have control. So be pay close attention. Companies are starting to work on that and be more kind of explicit in their user agreements because organizations are very concerned about that. But just note, just kind of like the internet, just assume if you're putting it out there, you're putting it into public and you have no idea where it's going to go. So be cautious. And now it's time for our Giving Tips segment with Bennett Weiner, one of the world's most renowned experts on charity accountability and the COO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. Sometimes when you go through a charity appeal, you may see a reference to the fact that 100% of the money donated is going to be spent on the particular program or perhaps for the particular emergency that it's soliciting for. We recommend that you be cautious about such claims. And the reason for that is that all organizations have administrative and fundraising costs in order to do their activities. So usually when organizations are making such restricted fund claims, it's because they're using other money, such as donations from other individuals or maybe a wealthy individual who's covering the administrative and fundraising costs of this particular activity so that all of it can go for programs. So the fact that they're saying 100% goes to a particular program doesn't mean those other costs don't exist. They're being paid for by the organization still. So when you do see such promotions, keep in mind the context of what it represents. And in order to meet our standards, when organizations make such claims, we ask them to include a caveat explaining how they're able to devote 100% of the donations to that particular activity. In other words, members of the board are covering our admin and fundraising at cost for this activity over whatever the circumstances are. So when you see a 100% claim, be cautious about it and look for an explanation as to how the organization was able to achieve that result. Well, Toshi, you said something at the horizons, three horizons of AI. The course, yeah. S- sessions that you all offer people, and I recommend it to to everyone. There's a course that the Institute offers called Three Horizons for AI. And Toshi's one of the featured teachers or speakers in those three horizons. One of the things you said really kind of made me made a little bit of hair I have on my head stand up. (laughs) And that is (laughs) you said that we don't really understand this technology. And I was like, whoa, you mean we don't like know how it really works? And I was like, that's a concern, right? I mean, what was did you really mean that or were you just like trying to get me trying to see if I could get the hair on my head stood up? That's absolutely true. It's really important to note. And I would say it's really important to understand this in the context that you're about to have lots of messaging coming at you. All these experts, all these companies that are going to promise you that they know exactly that they can solve all your problems with AI. And I'm not saying that none of them can. Just note that even the people building this technology do not fully understand how it works or what it will do given different circumstances. It's more accurate to say that we are discovering the capabilities of generative AI than we are inventing it. By nature, these AI models, these large language models, ChatGPT, 
they're created in a process where we essentially dump a whole bunch of data or text in the case of these large language models into a pot. <laughs> we cook it up with these algorithms and these technologies and a whole bunch of computing power. And then it produces these large language models that are so large at their representation of all the relationships between the words at a scale and a level that is incomprehensible for humans to understand, at least how the computers understand. We understand it kind of, we understand languages by growing up in the culture and learning it, right? But the reason I say this is because when we try to look inside and understand like what is going on between me asking you a question and you putting me, giving me an answer, we have a lot of difficulty understanding what's going on. It's a, oh, it's more akin to like rubbing a genie, genie bottle at this point. And even the leading experts will tell you that same thing if you press them, right? Like sometimes we've released models, like OpenAI released a version of ChatGPT, the engine that runs ChatGPT. We're now on version four, but before they released a version two and released a version three, it took them a couple of years to even realize some of the capabilities that ChatGPT2 had. Because again, no one's writing instructions of what this thing is supposed to do. They just kind of put a whole bunch of things in this like proverbial cauldron, essentially, and we get out this kind of magical device or you know mechanism. And, and I think in case in point, the Jeffrey Hinton, who literally uh, invented the core technologies that are enabling many of these new generative AI models, what's something called a transformer uh, mechanism, that it's the T in GPT. <laughs> he invented this at Google several years back in a paper that they published out. And now it's kind of exploded. It's finally kind of come to fruition that the, the theory of using these transformers is actually working. He actually, Jeffrey Hinton, left his job leading AI at Google explicitly saying he he's concerned because he's not sure what this implications are going to be for this technology. And not that he thinks it's going to necessarily do bad things. We just don't know. And he wanted to be able to speak more freely about that topic. And that's why he left Google. Not that Google was preventing him from, but you know, it's just inherently you, you're limited what you can say when you're working with those kind of organizations. So I want to, I do want to add on to this. This all sounds very foreboding in the sense that I think there's a lot of unknowns and I, this is going to have huge impacts, but I also do want to caution listeners uh, from falling into like the, the binary of believing that like AI is either going to end the world and kill humanity or that AI is going to save humanity. Right. And those are, you know, this kind of utopian dystopian view and it's easy to jump in there. And I find myself in there occasionally as well too, but the reality is most likely not either of those extremes, at least in the short term, it's more nuanced and there's a lot of really wonderful capabilities. I've you know talked a lot about kind of it concerns and issues, but there are amazing things this technology has already shown that it can do. Well, you know, I teach. One of the things I do is teach. And we had a conversation in our class about whether we should use it in, as part of the education process. Ultimately, I did. But I'm finding out that not all teachers or faculty members agree on that. Have you given any thought to how educators should use generative AI? We have quite a bit. I mean, one of the features that we're most interested in, spend a lot of time thinking about at Institute for the Future is the future of education and learning and, and workforce training in those kind of categories. 
generative AI has a lot of incredible potentials, right? I mean, one of the biggest visions for what this could mean in terms of education is that the idea of creating essentially like a personalized learning coach that basically works directly with you. One of the examples that I love to give for folks, if you haven't really played with ChatGPT, is like go in and find an article that's something that you don't fully understand, paste it into ChatGPT and say, can you explain this to me like I'm in ninth grade? Or can you explain this to me like a fifth grader? Try that one. Or you could even say, explain this to me if I have like learning disability or comprehension issues. It's really good at explaining things and explaining them as many times as you need. And that's one of the things that's, you know, the biggest challenge of our current educational system, right? Is like, how can a teacher, especially when they have an increasingly large class, address the personal learning needs and the time it might take to really work with the student? So that is one of the things that that many folks are really excited about. Khan Academy has already been building out examples of this. They have something called Khan Migo, which is essentially a GPT-4 powered personal tutor that they're slowly kind of prototyping and rolling out in limited release right now. So I think that is kind of the longer term vision is like, what if we, we had that kind of teacher or coach or I think when the technology first came out, we got a lot of the same reactions that maybe even when the internet was released, like, oh, isn't this cheating? And aren't people going to just use this for cheating? I think I've talked to some folks in the educational sector who already say, well, yeah, but a good number of university papers are already written by humans overseas, you know, these kind of essay farms. So that's already happening, right? So, I mean, I think like most technologies and specifically most media technologies, which is my area, I think that they could be really powerful tools for truth seeking, but they can also be used for bypassing and for nefarious things and for things that maybe aren't so good. I mean, and I think on the issue of whether or not they should be used in education, I think, again, it's how we use this tool, right? I mean, I, for one, like, I don't really know how to drive from my house to a lot of places in San Francisco, even though I've lived here for 20 years, because I don't really pay attention. I just follow what Google Maps tells me to do. And I think if we fell into a similar pattern with AI, where we just said, just tell me what to do, then we lose our ability to not only have critical thought, but we're not learning. We're not co-learning in the process. So I think a lot of folks will use it to try to bypass all sorts of things and automate all sorts of things to not have to do uh, the work. But sometimes we have to recognize that it's through the work that we actually gain the skills that we need in the long run. And there's a lot of values-based decisions that we have to make around this. You know, I think about what is the role of a teacher? And it seems to me with technologies like this, our roles could maybe expand to be more of a facilitator of education than an actual teacher of information. Let's help young people and learners curate their education in a way that is tailored really for their ability to learn the the way that they go about learning, the modality that they learn best, and to really give us more resources at our disposal to help people learn and accumulate and gather information. But I guess the, the jury's out on that, but I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, I'm on that team. All right. I love that vision. As you mentioned, I'm an educator at IFTF. I've taught throughout my whole life and I, I recently was asked to make a teaching statement and it really aligned well with what you just described. 
it's important for people to know how to go out and seek information, especially to verify what AI systems are telling you. But I would say in terms of teaching and learning, you know, I see my role as I say is cultivating curiosity. It's more valuable for me to cultivate curiosity in a learner than it is to impart information knowledge. That doesn't mean I don't share information knowledge, but I always hope that my interactions, not just with explicit like teacher learner, but every human interaction I have, I always hope that I leave people with the motivated sense of wonder, like, oh, okay, I could learn more about this and I, and I want to. That's the most powerful thing that you can give to anybody. So let's talk about AI and the media. Toshi, I created a digital twin on this program called Hey Jen. Check this out. Art Taylor here, the host of the Heart of Giving podcast. No, I'm your host, Art Taylor. You're the digital copy. What? No, no. Clearly, you're the digital avatar created to help me promote the podcast. I'm the real Art Taylor. I don't think so. I've been hosting this show, sharing inspiring stories about generosity and service for years now. You just showed up today claiming to be me. Sounds fishy if you ask me. Now, wait a minute. I created the Heart of Giving podcast to uncover the motivations behind giving and how it transforms people. The conversations featured on the show provide tips to help people make meaningful gifts of their time and money. Sure, sure. That's something I would say, not you. Probably just wrote that on my podcast description. Nice try, faux art, but everyone knows I'm the host around here. Oh, yeah? Well, I came up with the name The Heart of Giving to capture the spirit behind selfless acts of generosity. So if anyone is an imposter, it's you. Ha! I bet you can't even name some of the nonprofits and change makers we've had on the show over the years. I know them all by heart. All right, let's take a deep breath. Clearly, there's some kind of digital clone mix-up going on here. But the mission remains the same, to spread the spirit of generosity throughout the world, whoever the real Art Taylor is. Hmm. You drive a hard bargain, but fine. Truce accepted. <laughs> cool. So you introduced me to Hey Jim. What do you think of that? <laughs> Your digital twin. There are a number of people who reached out to me and said, we weren't quite sure what this was. We thought you were having a conversation with yourself pretending to be a bot, <laughs> you know? So they just thought it was me in this way or then me. So they weren't quite sure. Then other people thought it was kind of a clever way to humorously talk about the podcast and promote the podcast. But then there were others who said, this is scary because we have to worry about elections and what people might do with fakes and all this stuff. Yep. And I know from a media standpoint, I guess all of that's possible because frankly, if you did not know me and you just kind of looked at a 30 second video, you might think it was me or you might think it was a human. Yeah. And so there are some concerns, but I love it. I think it's from on a good side. It gives you many more opportunities to do creative things with media. But as you, as I'm sure you'll agree, we've got to figure out what kind of notes or how do we caution people about understanding what they're seeing. What you're talking about is, let's, let's pull this apart though, because there's a, really, there's a bunch of really important things that you bring up in this, this story. 
First of all, you know, when we say that these chatbots are large language models, I want to just emphasize that language doesn't just mean that they can communicate in, in English, Spanish, French, Chinese, that they're able to speak any sort of way that uh, with symbols that humans use to communicate. So that means they can take scientific data. They're increasingly able to look at images and generate images. They're able to look at video and audio and generate video and audio. And this is the generative side of AI. And that you might hear this term multimodal. So like ChatGPT now can already generate images. It can even talk to you with a realistic sounding human voice. So all those things. But this idea of creating a digital twin of yourself, an avatar, you described, yeah, uh, this tool, HeyGen, it's at HeyGen.com. You can go in and with just 30 seconds of footage from your just regular webcam on your computer, it can take that video and audio and train a model, an AI model, a generative AI model of you as an avatar. And then you can type in any words you want and it will not only have it say it, it'll say it in your voice with your likeness. So these are sometimes they're called digital clones or deep fakes. That's another term we've heard. And this is something you might have seen years ago, like, you know, people created an Obama deep fake, I think like seven or six or seven years ago now. So it was a while back. That took a team of computer scientists and a university supercomputer like weeks to generate. What you're describing and what I've been using, hey, Jen, and anybody can go on a website now and do it for free, <laughs> happens in 30, 30, 40 seconds on a website for free. So this is exciting and it's certainly playful and it's pretty cool to go and make a little version of yourself to an avatar, especially since you can make it speak in any language too, even languages you don't speak. And that's super fun and playful, but I think what you're pointing to and kind of the reactions that you're getting, I think are a kind of point to an area that as actually the main focus of IFTF's foundational research for this next year is the question is in a world where now machines can not only speak our language, but also appear as humans and have human voices and do and have conversations with you. And this is going to start to appear in many facets of our lives. How do you navigate these new relationships? How do we evaluate? Like, am I talking to the real art or am I talking to a fake version of him that he made that he knows is out there? Am I, am I talking to a fake version that someone else made? Like, am I, when I go on to Facebook now, they have all these digital celebrity avatars, AI avatars. I'm talking to, I can to go talk to Paris Hilton or Snoop Dogg. Like, what are these new relationships? Uh, especially since many of them are going to be free. And as we know, when something's free, you are the product. So that relationship with you now becomes the product that someone else is mining. We already experienced this in small ways with social media, just general life on the internet, but now it's going to have that human voice and that image that goes along with it. And you mentioned like, what does this mean, you know, in terms of the elections, that's another area I'm particularly interested in doing a bunch of work on right now with the ML. We were invited to participate in a training of election officials in the state of Arizona hosted by the secretary of state who runs the elections. And they asked me to actually try to deep fake the secretary of state, <laughs> the head of the elections for the state and create a video. So we did that and we played that video for election officials and law enforcement agents. And no one knew it wasn't him, except for maybe a couple of people who like work with him on a daily basis. 
And so this is going to be a big question. And, and there's kind of two sides to this, which is there's the one obvious side of like, how are we going to navigate like what is real when there's a lot of fake things out there? The other side that's also a problem is, are we going to trust anything that's real? <laughs> right. Anymore? That's the it's other actually side. true. Right. Because the question is going to be in our mind, is it fake? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and actually, there was a study that just came out of Stanford this last week where the researchers said, yes, the impacts of generative AI for misinformation and influence on voters is a real factor, but it might be that the fear of that is actually a more bigger influence. So this is why I think it's really important. Again, it's easy to fall into like AI is going to fix everything and or AI is going to ruin everything. This is why it's so important that as many of us as possible in different kind of layers of society that we exist can learn as much about this technology now and start asking questions and start advocating for the things that we need and want. This is not something just to adapt to or to adopt. We as human beings need to be engaged in advocating. And I'm particularly interested in particularly mission-driven organizations right now who I'm sure are asking questions around like, how can this increase our productivity? And there's certainly a lot of ways it could. It's really good at doing a lot of rote tasks like summarization and kind of generating form letters and personalized communications. And it could be really good for training and education. But I also want to encourage the audience of this podcast and, and your community, and I'm trying to do this as much as possible, to think about what are the values you want to be advocating for right now as this technology is being introduced into society? Right now is our chance to make a lot of key decisions about how we want to shape the future. Well, we're creating a tool at the Wise Giving Alliance, BBB Wise Giving Alliance. And our mission is to try to help people make informed giving decisions. So we have a lot of useful information, we believe, on our website. And we want to use that as a basis for a bot to access and answer questions for people. So if you came to our bot, once it's released, you'll be able to ask a question like, so how should I think best about giving during a disaster? And it'll give you mm. ideas for how to think mm -hmm. about giving mm -hmm. during a disaster once you ask that question. Or if you want to know, should you put all your money, for instance, into one particular organization or should you spread it around? It'll give you some ideas based on what we put into our database of information for to use and, and to answer those kinds of questions. What we believe was that's going to be so helpful about ours is that we're curating the information that the bot can use. You know, our intention is for it to use our curated information that we can feel comfortable. It's generating answers, but it's generating answers based on some content that we have curated. And so we think that is a responsible way. Obviously, not everything is going to be able to be secured that way, although we're going to try to do our best to make sure as much of it is as possible so that the answers that come, the suggestions or the the ideas that come out of the answers are answers that people can feel pretty good about that's based mm -hmm. on some real, real data. I think that's a really interesting use case. So Toshi, as organizations begin thinking about how to use AI, how should they basically organize themselves around using it and making sure that it is used in a way that's actually helpful to their organizations? 
Sure. Well, first is to understand that organizations need to build literacy in what this technology is, what it can do, what it can't do, what we're not sure if it can do. And that is a rapidly evolving knowledge space. So this is tuning into podcasts like this. I mean, fortunately, like everybody's talking about it. So there's a lot of sources of information. But I would just say that before rushing into and giving into a sense of FOMO, like if we don't implement or if we don't adopt this right away, I wouldn't succumb to that. I would say it's important to learn about what this is, let it evolve a little bit more, find some ways that you can introduce some literacies into various levels of your organization because I think we're going to need to learn about what this means from all levels, from folks just on the ground implementing things to more managers and, and leaders are going to have very different experiences with this technology. So I recommend getting as much hands-on experience. Like, I mean, one of the beautiful things about this is not like quantum computing where only a couple of people have access. Like, Everybody in the world pretty much can get access to ChatGPT, and uh, that is, to a large extent, the state of the art technology, and you can just go in and play with it. So I would say get some hands-on experience to build uh, up some new intuitions around it. Also, just note that you, the experience you're having isn't necessarily the experience everybody else is having, but validate your own experience, build your own intuition. Then I would look for ways to run small controlled experiments within your organization. I would also encourage folks, because one of the biggest questions that we have aside from like, how do we adopt is how do we begin to even consider what an ethics and usage policy would be? And there's no perfect answer for that. But I think those are the questions that need to start to be asked. And I think applying your organization or your sector's existing kind of values and ethics policies to AI is a good place to start. It is unique and new in many ways and other ways, like things like just like good data privacy and, and kind of those kinds of policies and protocols are already, there's continue to be valid with generative AI. Well, great. Well, Toshi, this has been wonderful. And as I said, we're going to come back and do a part two of this because there's so much that we've left on the table here to discuss. And we're going to learn a lot more next week about how this can benefit the nonprofit sector when we come back from Seattle. So to all of you who are listening, I know you got a lot today, but you're going to get even more next time we talk. And if you have questions, frankly, reach out to me. You know, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Art Taylor on LinkedIn, HR Taylor, you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn. If you have a question you want to ask Toshi, I'll put it out there for him. And if you're a podcast listener, I appreciate you uh, checking in. And for those of you who are listening for the first time, you can find us on all major podcast platforms. This is a weekly podcast. The Heart of Giving podcast is weekly. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. And I hope you'll not only listen, but also subscribe so you can get every episode when it comes out. If you want to support the podcast, that would be wonderful, too. You can just go to give.org and make a donation to the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests. 
not those of the BBBY's Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.